This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we reapply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Casablanca from 1942, directed by Michael Curtiz, written by Julius and Philip Epstein and Howard Koch, starring Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman, Claude Rains, and Peter Lorre. However, quickly before we get to the show, next week we will be covering one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time, Goodwill Hunting from 1997, directed by Gus Van Sant, written by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, starring Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, Casey Affleck, Minnie Driver, Stellan Skarsgård, and Robin Williams. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com to sign up for our newsletter, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at gmotepodcast. And, as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. We would really appreciate it. With that, we have a couple of additional items to discuss before the regular show. First up, we were downloaded in our 84th and 85th countries, Israel and Tunisia, respectively, this week. So a shout-out to our Israeli and Tunisian listeners. Next, we also had a listener email and question that I would like to discuss that has to do with the movie we did with our guest, Keith Techmeyer, back in November last year, Saving Private Ryan. Our guest writes, Gents, this little observation of an actor's reaction has been bugging me since I saw this movie. Near the movie's beginning, after General Marshall orders Private Ryan to be rescued, Tom Hanks reports to Dennis Farina. Farina listens to Tom Hanks point to the Omaha Beach map and describe what he has been through in terms of German equipment encountered and destroyed. Quote, it was a tough mission, that's why you got it. Farina gazes for a rather extended time at Hanks' face as he speaks and then shifts his eyes and turns his head down to the map. How do you interpret that long pause? Is Farina just shocked at the horrors Hanks has been through? Does Farina feel sorry for Hanks as he has now selected Hanks for the Ryan mission? Is he second-guessing Hanks' selection, having just listened to his D-Day experience, or is it that he just feels admiration at Hanks and thinks he's got the right man for the job? Best, Steve from Staten Island, New York. Well, Steve, thank you for writing in, first off. I'm very glad and uh, appreciative for your correspondence. And uh, Dad, we both took a little bit of time to at least review the scene in question. And I guess what was your take on this particular moment that he's referring to? Well, I think Dennis Farina was really, he had come to the conclusion that Hanks was the guy for the job. But after talking to him, he's kind of watching and sizing him up to determine or confirm that this is the right move because he knows that this is coming all the way from the very top, and he wants to make sure it's done correctly. And so he's watching Hanks' reaction and how Hanks presents himself and whether he believes Hanks is up to the job. That's my interpretation. 
I took a much simpler approach to it, which was I don't think he had a choice whether or not Hanks was going to be assigned to this. I don't think that that came from him directly. Rather, I actually think of it as what I would like to refer to as the surgeon's pause. You know, when you're in a waiting room and you're waiting for what the outcome of the surgery or whatever has happened to your loved one is, and the surgeon takes off his mask and pauses for a second before he delivers the bad news, Farina knows that Hanks has a in or unenviable task ahead of him, has already been through a unmeasurable amount of pain and suffering just to get to the point where he can even listen to this assignment. And now he's sending him back out there. And the pause is basically for him to collect himself in order to deliver the bad news for Hanks. At least that's how I view it. It's a soldier's duty. So I can't imagine as a commander, Farina would be necessarily apprehensive to deliver the news or to give the orders. So that's why I'm thinking he's sizing him up trying to determine whether or not he's up to the task. And that's what I'm seeing. Yes, but even leaders, while sometimes needing to be blunt, and he certainly is after that pause, they're still human. And there is a notion that says, I'm sending this guy off probably to die. Yes, but that's the assignment that's given every time you send somebody on any kind of mission. So as a commander, you're told that you can't control who lives or dies. You have to assign the command or assign the mission based upon who's the best and the most uh, capable of completing it. And so that's the issue. I don't think, I don't think Farina's pausing because he's apprehensive to send Hanks after this. I think he's pausing again because he's sizing him up to determine yet again whether or not he's made the right choice. So, Steve from Staten Island, I hope we have answered your question and at least given you a little bit of peace since it's quite clear that this moment has been bugging you. That's at least what we think on the subject. But uh, let me just say thank you for writing in and for your feedback. We really do appreciate it. If you too have a question or anybody else in the audience has a question for the show or something that you would like us to discuss, please write us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com and we will try to answer your questions too. And I have to admit that I was a bit tickled to receive the great feedback and questions. So again, thank you, Steve. All right, Dad, then let's turn our attention once again to Casablanca. We previously discussed this on the season one finale that came out on January 6th, 2021. It was inside our top 10 after that episode, but has since currently fallen to number 11 on our current list. So why did you pick this movie to revisit? Because by most accounts, Casablanca is at or near the top of everybody's list of best movies. And Having it fall to 11, I think we may have been a little harsh in some of our judgment. So that's why I want to make sure we have some level of accuracy as we're going forward. It depends on what types of lists you're looking at. Now, the most notable greatest movie of all time list, which we'll be getting an update this year, the Sight and Sound poll, I'm not sure it made the general director's list. 
of the greatest movies, not even in the top 100. I think it made the critics list, but it was rather low comparatively. This is not held in the same esteem internationally as something like, I would say Citizen Kane is notably up there. The latest version of the list from 2012 held that Vertigo was the number one greatest movie of all time at that point. There are certain other films that I think have surpassed this, but when you consider, I guess, the most American film, that's to me where this movie really fits in because it has a tendency to encapsulate what Americans would love to think about themselves, but is almost never true. It's our fantasy that we're willing to choose and forego our own personal desires in the sake of doing what's right, even though we're one of the most selfish countries on the face of the planet. Okay. I'm going to just read you the first couple of sentences from an article that I found from June of 2010, written by Eric Snyder. And this, to me, explains a lot about what you're talking about. In his audio commentary for the 2003 special edition DVD of Casablanca, Roger Ebert says the film probably appears on more best-of-all-time lists than any other movie, including Citizen Kane. Why? Because Kane tends to appeal more to film scholars than to regular people, while Casablanca is universally beloved. Even people who don't like old movies or black-and-white movies like Casablanca. By 1977, it was the most frequently broadcast film on American television, exposing it to millions of people who otherwise scarcely watched movies from the 1940s. So you can say that uh, sight and sound and such, okay, and, and us as more cinemaphiles, but Casablanca transcends that. It is a movie that has a broader appeal and that more people will watch, even those who do not want to watch a black and white film. So what is this movie about then? Well, it's ultimately a love triangle set during a chaotic period of war. And ultimately, whether the uh, interests of, of individuals will triumph over the interests of the greater good. Yeah, I think Bogart really sums that up with his Hill of Beans line. Yep. So, since this is a revisit, I would encourage everyone to go back and listen to our original episode if you want our category listings for best performance, best scene, and a lot of that. We'll give you some of the other background since we've done this film before. We'll do a Did You Know section, and we have a plot summary, I think, ready, correct? Yes, as well as some recognition, and then we'll go pretty much right into the Stanley rubric instead of trying to do some of the other pieces of a normal episode, just so that we can do a comparison and see if we got it right on our initial review. So let's start with that plot summary, Dad. With the outbreak of war in Europe, refugees make their way to Casablanca in French Morocco, attempting to obtain visas, which will allow them to travel to Lisbon and eventually America. Two such visas, or letters of transit, obtained under questionable circumstances, end up in the hands of Rick Blaine, Humphrey Bogart, an American running the most popular cafe in Casablanca. When Victor Laszlo, Paul Heinrich, 
a resistance leader to the German war effort in Europe, shows up with his wife, Ilse Lund, Ingrid Bergman, attempting to secure the letters to escape the clutches of the Vichy French police captain Louis Renault, Claude Rains, and Major Heinrich Strasser of the SS. Rick is forced to relive his heartbreak over Ilsa all over again. Caught between helping Laszlo escape and wanting to rekindle his affair with Ilsa, Rick is forced to choose between his own happiness and the fate of the world. Thank you. Cast for this movie, Michael Curtiz as director. Julius J. Epstein, Philip G. Epstein, and Howard Koch as writers. Humphrey Bogart as Rick Blaine. Ingrid Bergman as Ilsa Lund. Paul Heinrich as Victor Laszlo. Claude Rains as Captain Louis Reynaud. Conrad Veet as Major Heinrich Strasser. Sidney Greenstreet as Signor Ferrari. Peter Lorre as Signor Ugarte. Kurt Bois as Pickpocket. Leonid Kinski as Sasha. Madeline LeBeau as Yvonne, Joy Page as Anina Brandel, S.Z. Sakal, credited as S.K. Sakal, as Carl, and Dooley Wilson as Sam. Recognition for this movie. Casablanca premiered at the Hollywood Theater in New York City on November 26, 1942, to capitalize on Operation Torch, the Allied invasion of French North Africa, and the subsequent capture of Casablanca. It went into general release on January 23, 1943 to take advantage of the Casablanca Conference, a high-level meeting in the city between British Prime Minister Winston Churchill and American President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The Office of War Information prevented screening of the film to troops in North Africa, believing it would cause resentment among Vichy supporters in the region. In its initial American release, Casablanca was a substantial but not spectacular box office success earning $3.7 million, equivalent to $47 million in today's terms. A 50th anniversary re-release grossed $1.5 million in 1992. According to Warner Brothers Records, the film earned $3.398 million domestically and $3.461 million in foreign markets. Casablanca was nominated for Best Actor for Humphrey Bogart, Supporting Actor for Claude Rains, Cinematography for Black and White, Film Editing, and Score. It won for Best Picture, Director for Michael Curtiz, and Screenplay for Epstein, Epstein, and Coke. In 1989, the film was one of the first 25 films selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. In 2005, it was named one of the 100 Greatest Films of the Last 80 Years by Time Magazine. The selected films were not ranked. Bright Lights Film Journal stated in 2007, quote, It is one of the rare films from Hollywood's golden age, which has managed to transcend its era to entertain generations of moviegoers. Casablanca provides 21st century Americans with an oasis of hope in a desert of arbitrary cruelty and senseless violence, end quote. The film also ranked at number 28 on Empire's list of the 100 greatest movies of all time, which stated, quote, Love, honor, thrills, wisecracks, and a hit tune are among the attractions, which also include a perfect supporting cast of villains, sneaks, thieves, and refugees, and bar staff. But it's Bogart and Bergman's show entering immortality as screen lovers reunited only to part. The irrefutable proof that great movies are accidents. End quote. Screenwriting teacher Robert McKee maintains that the script is 
quote, the greatest screenplay of all time, end quote. In 2006, the Writers Guild of America agreed, voting it the best ever in its list of 101 greatest screenplays. In 1998, it was on AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies list as the number two overall movie of all time. In 2001, it was on AFI's 100 Years 100 Thrills as the number 37 movie of all time. In 2002, it was on AFI's 100 Years 100 Passions as the number one film of all time. 2003's AFI's 100 Years 100 Heroes and Villains, Rick Blaine was the number four hero of all time. 2004, it was on AFI's 100 Years 100 Songs as it had the number two song of all time as time goes by. 2005, it was on AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes for the number five quote, Here's looking at you, kid. Number 20, quote, Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Number 28, play it, Sam. Play as time goes by. Number 32, quote, round up the usual suspects. Number 43, quote, we'll always have Paris. And the number 67, quote, of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. These six lines were the most of any film, with Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Odds tied for second with three apiece. Also nominated for the list was, Ilsa, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. In 2006, it was on AFI's 100 Years 100 Cheers list at number 32, and in 2007, it was on AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies 10th Anniversary Edition as the number three movie of all time. Did you know? Many of the actors who played the Nazis were in fact German Jews who had escaped from Nazi Germany. Did you know? During the scene in which the La Marseillaise is sung over the German song Die Wacht am Rhein, The Watch on the Rhine, many of the extras had real tears in their eyes as a large number were actual refugees from Nazi persecution in Germany and elsewhere in Europe and were overcome by the emotions the scene brought out. The scene was copied from Jean Reno's The Grand Illusion from 1937, in which French soldiers in a German POW camp sing the song as a similar gesture of defiance. Did you know? Because the film was made during World War II, the production was not allowed to film at an airport after dark for security reasons. Instead, it used a soundstage with a small cardboard cutout airplane and forced perspective. To give the illusion that the plane was full-sized, they used little people to portray the crew preparing the plane for takeoff. Years later, the same technique was used in Alien from 1979, in the scene where the crew discovers the dead space jockey, with director Ridley Scott's son and some of his friends in scaled-down spacesuits. Did you know? Humphrey Bogart's then-wife, actress Mayo Methot, continually accused him of having an affair with Ingrid Bergman, often confronting him in his dressing room before a scene was to be shot. Bogart would come onto the set in a rage. In fact, despite the undeniable on-screen chemistry between Bogart and Bergman, they hardly spoke, and the only time they bonded was when the two had lunch with Geraldine Fitzgerald. According to Fitzgerald, the whole subject at lunch was how they could get out of that movie. They thought the dialogue was ridiculous and the situations were unbelievable. I knew Bogart very well, and I think he wanted to join forces with Bergman to make sure they both said the same things. For whatever reasons, Bogart and Bergman rarely spoke after that. Did you know? In the 1980s, this film's script was sent to readers at a number of major studios and production companies under its original title, 
everybody comes to Rick's. Some readers recognized the script, but most did not. Many complained that the script was, quote, not good enough to make a decent movie. Others gave such complaints as, too dated, too much dialogue, and not enough sex. Did you know? Some years ago, in a shop dealing with historical documents, a photo still from this film was found, showing Rick sitting at the chessboard. Accompanying the photo was a letter from Humphrey Bogart to a friend in New York, indicating a specific chess move. The document dealer explained that the chess game in the movie was a real game Bogart was playing by mail with his friend during the course of filming. Did you know? Although this was an overtly anti-Nazi film, it wasn't the first one that Warner Brothers had made. It had come out several years earlier with Confessions of a Nazi Spy from 1939. Warner's was the first Hollywood studio to be so open about its opposition to the Nazi regime, and the first to prohibit its films from being distributed in Nazi-occupied territories. Indeed, Harry M. Warner was making speeches denouncing Nazi activities in Germany as early as 1936. Did you know? When this film won the Academy Award for Best Picture, Jack L. Warner was first on stage to accept the award, beating the film's actual producer, Hal B. Wallace, who was incensed at this slight and never forgave Warner. Wallace, at the time regarded as the wonderkind at the studio, left Warner Brothers shortly afterwards. Did you know? It is never revealed why Rick cannot return to America. Julius J. Epstein later said that, My brother, Philip G. Epstein, and I tried very hard to come up with a reason why Rick couldn't return to America. But nothing seemed right. We finally decided to not give a reason at all. Did you know? Dooley Wilson, Sam, was a professional drummer who faked playing the piano. As the music was recorded at the same time as the film, the piano playing was actually a recording of a performance by Jean Vincent Plummer, who was playing behind a curtain, but who was positioned such that Dooley could watch and copy his hand movements. Did you know? Director Michael Curtiz's Hungarian accent often caused confusion on the set. He asked a prop man for a poodle to appear in one scene. The prop man searched high and low for a poodle, while the entire crew waited. He found one and presented it to Curtiz, who screamed, A poodle! A poodle of water! With that, we'll take our first break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. So, Dad, we are going to go right back into the Stanley rubric and compare it with our original scores. So, let's start with Legacy. Our original legacy score when we first did the movie was 9.75. Do you want to go first or second? I'll go second. So I'm going to give it the exact same score. I think we got this one right. And I rarely say that. I think this is an enduring film and one people know given that you mentioned the name and most people think Humphrey Bogart before they think Morocco. But I can't quite get to a 10 given the other names we have at tens at this point and the other names that are still yet to come as widely celebrated and as many lists as this movie is on, I just can't quite get myself to a 10 and I'm not entirely sure why. I just know that this is going to be one of the most revisited movies in the history of cinema, likely as long as I'm still alive. So I'm going to maybe cop out and go with the 9.75 as kind of a bridge between 9.5 and 10, but that's where I'm sitting. Um, no. You can go up to anybody who is over 30 
and say, we'll always have Paris, or Louis, this may be the start of a beautiful friendship, and it will immediately trigger them to remember which movie it comes from. It has a legacy. I mean, this thing exists. They have copied the thing, the, the concept. They've noted the trench coat. They've noted all of the the departing scenes. They've done it. It's been iconic. It's been in so many films where it's been parodied, carried forward. This is the most iconic film of its age that exists in modern cinema. And I think somehow or another, those under 30 will eventually come around to this because somehow or another, it seems to make its appearance again each generation. So when you look at the influence that this film had over the length of time, this is now 70 years, it's a five on on the industry because the industry still reveres this film. The critics revere this film. It's always near, you know, when they're taking into account not the the uh, the, the film uh, professors or the critics, but just taking into account people who are love who love film. This is always near the top of the list. It's a five for that reason, and for the public. Just because it is so iconic, everything right down to, I mean, most of the people will never know who, but they'll remember the whole scene with uh, Igati uh, getting arrested and help, help me, Rick, help me. You know, uh, it is common. It is about as common of people who watch film for a film of this age as any. So it's a perfect 10. You can't say anything else because no other film of this age has that level of impact. I thought maybe Gone with the Wind, but quite frankly, it's dated and it's falling off. And I don't think nearly other than the the infamous lines, frankly, Scarlet, I don't give a damn. I don't think anybody would uh, even on evaluation put it anywhere close in today's culture. I'll name two other movies that I think are in the same general category and are from the same era, roughly. So you mentioned Gone with the Wind. I will place it or The Wizard of Oz as one that we both said was a 10 in that category. I would also place something like It's a Wonderful Life, which came out a few years after this, as being in that category that a lot of people know and has a universality. Maybe a little bit more so The Wizard of Oz than It's a Wonderful Life, which we gave a 9.5. So current 10s on the list that we've graded so far, The Godfather, Jaws, and The Wizard of Oz. You'd be putting it in that class, whereas at a 9.75, we currently have this movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Psycho, and the first time we did Back to the Future, which you were not a part of. Okay, I understand. But in retrospect, and I, 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 unlike you, do not look at our scores from the last time around. I look at this fresh and reevaluate it with a fresh perspective. 
And having thought about it and thought about what have gotten tens, uh, it's a 10. It has the same general impact on culture that the other films that we've given a 10 have. In fact, I would even possibly give it more than a 10 given the, the films that we've listed as 10s because I think this has legs beyond some of those films. And I don't. I'm sorry. I just don't. Okay, that's... I think those are bigger films. But, I mean, this puts it in a new category by itself. So if you're going to give it a 10 and I'm at a 9.75, the average between us is going to end up being... You need help with the math? I guess so. Okay. A 9.88 overall. But that would be the only film just under 10 that would be separated in its own category. I just think culturally, just due to the amount of people that have seen it, that it's more relatable to children, that the wizard of Oz is a bigger movie. And I think that the cultural impact from an audience standpoint, as to what it did to film history of jaws is a bigger legacy than is Casablanca, even though it permeates a lot of pop culture. I just think those are a little bit higher And for that matter, The Godfather is one of the most iconic films of all time and has probably as much cultural reference point as this film, if not more. And I think more people know and have seen it than maybe this movie. I understand your points, but to go from a 9.75 all the way to a 10, I'm not quite with you on that one. So it it would end up getting a slight bump from its original score to a 9.88. Also, I'll make the point that I think at some point we do have to compare these movies against each other. If we just try and do it in a vacuum all the time, it doesn't serve the list itself because you have to sometimes, okay, is this on the same par with some of these other movie qualities? And you can maybe make groupings or tiers, but I think that helps separate where certain movies should fall overall in the list. Maybe that's not where you're at, but that's where I feel. Well, and we can do that, and maybe at some point in time that's what we need to do, which is to actually create the tiers of the movies we've graded and establish what constitutes a tier one and what constitutes tier two. Well, we kind of de facto have done that by what the scoring system is. It's why I keep track of what we've graded out throughout the course of the, you know, hundred and what is it now, 18, 19 episodes that we've done so far? Well, I understand that. But what I'm saying is, is you know, if you're talking about the ten, top 10 films that we've graded, maybe we need to actually compare the 10 films against each other and determine whether there's something flawed within that or where a film should be given a lower rating or a higher ranking than what we've given based upon an evaluation of the top 10 films according to our ranking. I don't think that's necessary because, one, we haven't come to a final ranking, and so that would be inconsistent because, I mean, there are films I did not expect to be in the top 10 of the list that uh, either upon revisit or initial conclusion kind of got a lot higher than I thought they would be, especially a couple of recent films. But that being said, you kind of just evaluate as you go if you are somebody like me who is constantly pouring over the scores and checking the lists 
and publishing, you know, what is the top 10 currently at this point in time. I'm always considering, okay, is this something that we need to keep? Is this something we should change? Is this something that needs to be reevaluated? I don't know if that's something that you have done consistently, but that's something I'm always thinking about. Well, I, I, I don't because I am evaluating each film individually and not really paying attention to where they fall. I'm just taking into account our, our rubric and, and evaluating each film on its own, not in relation to other films, because then it becomes much more subjective of what films you like or don't like. I'm not sure I, I agree with that. I think you can be objective while still placing these in it, but sometimes it's hard for me objectively to just say, how does this movie necessarily rank with giving it a score that's supposed to separate it from all the others? That's why I think you give too many sevens and eights sometimes when it's not warranted and don't necessarily give on a broad spectrum of degrees. But that's a different argument for a different time. All right, let's go to impact significance. Our original score on this was an 8.25. All right, I'll go first. Industry, I'm giving it a five. It was nominated and won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor for Claude Rains. Uh, Humphrey Bogart was nominated for Best Actor but didn't win. And Claude Rains did not win either. I thought he did. No, I said that in our recognition at the top. Okay. And it had significant impact at the time simply because it was one of many films that was coming that were coming out. I think it did influence the movie industry and help propel the careers of some of the actors. Claude Rains did several films thereafter. Humphrey Bogart became a major star within the studio. And then he had his whole string of very successful films in the 40s and into the 50s before his untimely death. As far as the public, I'm giving it a 4.5. Yes, it didn't score as well financially as other films. It wasn't a big blockbuster as far as production. But I think as the from the public perspective, I think it made Ingrid Bergman a, uh, a bigger star than she had been, and it really cemented Bogart in that leading man role that he then carried into all those other films. So I got a 9.5. Now, I definitely agree with most of your points on the industry perspective. It's not really arguable that this is probably a 5. It's probably one of the biggest movies of its time, at that moment was significant for most of its stars. Although I would, I would really push back on the Ingrid Bergman thing. She's really only known for this movie and really as far as other major roles had maybe a couple, a handful, but you can't really calculate the star effect it had on Humphrey Bogart being the leading man for the next 10, 15 years and being one of the most recognizable Hollywood stars of the golden era. I mean, he is synonymous with this film, and this film is synonymous with Bogart. They are tied at the hip so closely that it basically launches both into this extra stratosphere of film iconography. So that being said, 
I gave it a little bit lower on the audience grade of this because I think the response was good, but it was somewhat tepid by comparison to some other movies of its ilk or that it was around its contemporaries. I mean, it was a couple of years before that Gone with the Wind was one of the biggest grossing movies of all time. And I think still adjusted for inflation would be the highest grossing movie of all time by leaps and bounds, although it's been re-released and re-released and re-released on many different occasions. But that being said, I gave it a 3.5. I think the audience response was good, but not great. I think this is a movie that has lived bigger in its legacy and the amount of times that it's somehow come back with each generation and figured out a way of being endearing to each new generation than it was at the time that it was originally done. I think this is a movie that actually you appreciate more with continued viewings than you do with an initial one. And so I went with a 3.5 for an 8.5 overall, and the average between us then would be a 9. As far as Edward Bergman, she did The Bells of St. Mary after this with, with Bing Crosby, and not too long over after that, she ran off with uh, Antonio Rosalini, the Italian film director, and she was dead in Hollywood for two decades. All right, so then let's move to our third category, novelty. Our original score on this was a 7.25. It took me a while. This was the hardest category for me to land on because at first glance, I'm like, what is novel about this movie? It's taken from a play, but in reading enough about the background of the information on the development of the plot and the story, it couldn't be more different. I mean, yes, some of the characters and the names and the plot points remained the same, but basically the ending, the love story, most of the background details about each of the characters is widely changed. And it really is vastly different. I think it's a much different movie from the play to the movie version, enough to the point where I think it's almost a whole new thing. So even though it's adapted, quote unquote, I think this does get a novelty score from that. Also, this is a movie that has a strong Ingrid Bergman who clearly has agency of her own in order to leave Bogart, in order to go back to her husband. You have a prominent black character who's seemingly Rick's best friend throughout the movie. And to have a woman potentially leaving her husband for the main character, for a police chief to be eliciting sexual favors for a movie in 1942 for exit visas, no less... All of that was daring to me, so I'm going to raise from my usual starting point of 7 all the way up to a 9. This was one of the times where it was a clear love triangle. And I tried to think back prior to this, how many films involved an actual love triangle and not just three characters interplaying or, you know, kind of whatever. And I couldn't think of too many. I had a couple in mind, maybe... Philadelphia story, there was kind of uh, a love triangle. So that was not a point of marking it down. But ultimately, what is this film about, which is it's the ultimate noble sacrifice, which is to give up your personal happiness, your personal pleasure for the greater good of society or of the world. And the only story I could think of where there was greater sacrifice is 
It is a far more noble thing I do than I have ever done before, A Tale of Two Cities. So I couldn't think of anything more novel than, than uh, or except on those two points. I did grade it down just a tad, and I'm also at the nine that you had. Do you need help with the math? No, uh, that would be a nine between us. Okay. That being said, so your argument for novelty is that it's like a Charles Dickens novel? That's the only other story I could think of where there was such a level of noble sacrifice. Okay. All right, let's go to classicness then. Before I let you, and I normally let you go first on this one, I'm going to take the reins to, to start with. How this was not a 10 before, I'm not sure. We had a 9.25. This movie has a rather likable femme fatale, an anti-Nazi stance back when it was at least somewhat questionable, during the early part of America's involvement in the war, a central black character in 1942 that seemed to be the main character's best and only friend, all-time performances by the entire cast and crew, a soaring score, one of the great screenplays with some of the most iconic lines ever delivered, and on and on and on. It's a 10. This is one of the most classically classic movies you could ever name. It's a 10. The lines, the clothes. Bogart did more for trench coats (laughs) by this film. And fedoras than any other person probably has done uh, other than possibly Ursula Andress for bikinis. And you consider the time period and what was taking place, just this, this prospect, the code that was, you know, the censor's code uh, had a specific requirement that a woman could never leave her husband for another man. They had to fight with the censors to even imply this to take place. And the idea of sexual blackmail was also completely prohibited by the Hayes Act or the Hayes Code. Yet they got the, both of those into the film. So it's 10. Those are arguments for novelty, not classicness. Well, I, I think that those established a level in film that persevered over time. And so they're just classic because of that point, I guess. But okay, whatever. If you think they're novelty, whatever. You're arguing for something that's audacious. That, by definition, is novelty. Okay. Classicness is about its endurance over time and how well it's aged comparatively. Again, you made the point that this is probably one of the few 1940s movies that people don't mind watching, even those that aren't fans of old movies. Yes. That's a note for classicness. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway. Rewatchability, we originally had it at a nine. I thought about it for a bit, and this can be put on at almost any time and have my attention. I'm not garnering new things from the movie. I'm just enjoying and appreciating the movie that much more each time I watch it. And it has become probably something that I somehow watch probably twice a year anymore, which I can't say about almost anything else. So I had to... I feel like I was pushed into having this at a 9.5. 
Well, very good, because that's where I have it. This, to me, is a film that I will regularly watch at least once a year, and probably twice a year, because it'll invariably be some point where your mother and I are tired, and we want to watch a film, and we can't agree on anything. Usually, if I say, all right, we'll watch Casablanca, and if we get too tired <laughs> to finish it, we know the ending. So invariably, well, it's not even that's that long of a film. I know, but you know, we're at that age where you know we uh, yeah. eat dinner yeah. at four o'clock. Not quite there, but um, we have a tendency to nod off uh, periodically uh, uh, after nine o'clock if uh, it's been a long week or day. All right, so then the original audience score for this one was a 9.5 on Rotten Tomatoes, and I think at some point we need to have a discussion on audience scores because Rotten Tomatoes has become, how shall I put this delicately, not a great arbiter of what an audience truly thinks given that they don't restrict users from a single vote for how whether they like a movie or not, so certain movies can be tanked. And while for the most part, that hasn't come back to haunt any of the movies we've had on our list so far, it kind of puts a seed in the back of my mind that gives me an inkling. Maybe we should consider how, which ones we're taking as the true audience score parameters going forward on some of these. Yes, it may change. We may have to backdate some of these and it ends up creating more work for myself, but I don't want the list to be tainted because there are a bunch of trolls on the internet. That would at least be my preference. But regardless, the original audience score for this was a 9.5. Google users for this one, adding that in, has an 86%. Rotten Tomato users still have a 95%. So added together, the average between them would be a 9 point, or excuse me, a 90.5%, and that would give us 9.05 points. So... Recapping all of the scores here. So for Legacy, we had a 9.88 compared to the original score of 9.75. For Impact Significance, we had a 9 compared to the original score of 8.25. For Novelty, we had a 9 compared to its original score of 7.25. For Classicness, we now have a 10 compared to its original score of 9.25. And for Rewatchability, we have a now 9.5 compared to its original score of 9. And then finally, the audience score, we now have a 9.05 compared to its original score of 9.5 for a total score of 56.43. Any guess as to how far it moved up on the list compared to its original score of 53? It's second. We have a new number one. Ah. Which it seems that these revisits tend to either systematically raise a movie because we just thought it was too low to begin with. And so now I think three of the four revisits we've done or four of the five revisits we've done are like all in the top five or six. <laughs> and the one that you wanted to revisit because you thought it was well too high is now far down the list. So I think we come in with a predetermined agenda to try and raise something and it ends up unfortunately, jading the list overall. I can't say that having Casablanca number one is going to be the detriment of our list, but I think we need to reconsider some of how we uh, approach the revisits. 
Well, this is why I don't even look at the numbers before I reevaluate and reconsider these numbers. Because I don't want a situation where I'm going, well, I think that number was too low or that number was too high. That's just me, but I came in this with a fresh perspective and having really thought more about this film and, and thinking about it over over the long haul of what we've done as far as the number of films we've actually reviewed. And I think you're full of it if you don't think that you did instinctively make it higher and say, I'm not going to grade anything lower than a nine. Consciously? No, I didn't. Anyway. All right. So before we get to In Memoriam, let's take another quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. Since we have been on vacation the last few weeks and... This being our first episode back, unfortunately, we have, what, uh, I think 10 or 11 names? Uh, something like that. Uh, June Preston, American actress, was in Anne of Green Gables in Christmas in July. Brad Johnson, American actor, uh, was in Always and Melrose Place. Maggie Peterson, an American actress, she was originally on the Andy Griffin show. And the Bill Dana show, she was also a location manager for the movie Casino. I believe she was Thelma Lou on uh, the Andy, Andy Griffith show, show that <laughs> is regularly on TV yet today, or 60 years afterwards. John Aylward, uh, an American actor, he was in ER, The West Wing, uh, The Way Back. Marnie Schullenberg, an American actress who was on Several uh, soap operas, As the World Turns, One Life to Live. She was in Tainted Dreams as well. Linda Lawson, an American actress, uh, Sometimes a Great Notion, Night Tide, The Adventures in Paradise. Lee Lawson, American actress, also on uh, soap operas, Guiding Light, One Life to Live, and the and Love of Life. Gary Nelson, a film director, he directed Murder in Three Acts. Pride of uh, Jesse Helm and Molly and Lawless John. John Zadurko, American actor, apparitional gin and 892. Bo Hopkins, an American actor, was in The Wild Bunch, uh, American Graffiti, and in the TV show Dynasty. George Shapiro, American talent manager, managed Carl Reiner, Andy Kaufman, and was one of the television producers of the sitcom Seinfeld. And lastly, a, a fairly large name in the industry, uh, Ray Liotta, Goodfellas, Something Wild, Field of Dreams. He uh, was an, uh, an Emmy winner as well. Suddenly passed at age 67 unexpectedly. And one of the last times before we went on vacation uh, and had some of those pre-recorded episodes, you had asked me to start trying to post pictures of the particular actors and actresses or, I guess, people on these lists. And it's a little difficult to try and finagle that with how our website is set up. Uh, I couldn't exactly figure out how to do that properly while keeping it all organized. But I will put links to their obituaries in their descriptions, all on the episode notes that you can find the link to in the show description of each episode as we release them. 
So that will be there and available for you in case you're interested in finding out more about any of these individual people. Obviously, I think a few of the names are a little bit bigger than others. The biggest, of course, being Ray Liotta. I think there were a lot of tributes while we were gone to his sudden loss, uh, especially because I think he was in the middle of filming something else at the time. And I'm not sure if they've determined a cause of death yet, but just the outpouring on things like Instagram and Twitter of people that had come in contact with him, uh, I thought was rather unique given the normal Hollywood output is like putting up an RIP or something else. But no, these were very personal, touching tributes to him personally. It seemed very much like he was a very kind and generous man and was very much beloved among the Hollywood community. So uh, sad to see him go. And uh, a person that I think probably could have contributed more, if not for his life cut short. So with that, we give all of these a recognition for their time and work in the industry with a moment of silence. Thank you. All right, I don't have any remaining questions yet for this one. We handled actually quite a few remaining questions on the original episode. So again, I would encourage you to go look at that particular episode. If you go to the show page for this one, I have both the pod for the original as well as this revisit available for you right there. Uh, but any remaining thoughts for the week? Uh, no. I have some personal thoughts, but I will not get into those um, in any great detail. I'm just happy to be safe and healthy right at the moment and looking forward to continuing doing the show. I don't know if we've announced a lot of what's coming up yet in the next few weeks, in the coming months. Uh, I think we may have discussed at one point that we were going to do Best Picture Winner Month a list I let you select coming up here in July. I've already told everybody at the top of the show that we're doing Goodwill Hunting this next week. We're also doing the week after uh, a special episode that we've been wanting to get my other sister on the show a little bit more often, but it just has never quite worked out. But her favorite movie is Mary Poppins, which we'll be doing with her on her birthday. And then we will be going into the week after I believe Unforgiven is the first movie up on our Best Picture Winners Month. We also have a few international classics as we kind of go along later in the summer, including Fellini's Eight and a Half. I think we have another Kurosawa movie coming up, Rashomon, or Rashomon. I, I think I've pronounced that wrong continually for as long as uh, I can remember. And uh, we also have a couple of other anniversary movies coming up, like Reservoir Dogs, the 25th anniversary of that movie, or excuse me, 30th anniversary of that movie. So just some things to look forward to as we continue on during the rest of the summer. And thank you, of course, all for listening. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be covering one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time, Goodwill Hunting from 1997. Directed by Gus Van Sant, written by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, starring Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Casey Affleck, Minnie Driver, Stellan Skarsgård, and Robin Williams. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. 
please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com to sign up for our newsletter, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at gmodepodcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 